0: Deathwing by Brian Ansell and William King Cloudrunner gazed on the wreckage of his home and felt like weeping. He closed his eyes and took three breaths. But when he looked again, nothing had changed. He turned back towards the dropship, Deathwing. Weaselfears had just descended from the ramp. He gazed round fairly at what once had been Cloudrunner's village, and brought his storm bolter into attack position. A grin split his skull like face. Dark angels, be wary. Death has walked here, he said. The sun glistened off Weaselfears' black Terminator armour, with his white hair and Y shaped scar tattoos, He looked like the eater of bones come back to claim the world. Cloudrunner shook his head in disbelief. For two hundred years he had held the memory of this place in his mind, although the chapter was his home and the Battle Brothers were his family. He had always felt his spirit would return here when the Emperor granted him rest. He glanced in the direction of the burial mounds. They had been broken open. He made his way to the entrance. He could see that the bones had been broken and mingled. It was a blasphemy that only the bitterest of foes would perform. It marked the ending of his clan. The ghosts of my ancestors wander homeless, he said. They will become drinkers of blood and eaters of excrement. My clan is dishonoured. He felt a heavy gauntleted hand on his shoulder, and he turned to see lame bear gazing down at him. Two centuries ago, Cloudrunner and he had belonged to enemy clans. Now, the clansmen who they had fought alongside were dead. And the old rivalry had long ago become fast friendship. "'The Dark Angels are your people now,' said Lame Bear in his soft voice. "'If necessary, we will avenge this dishonor." Cloudrunner shook his head. "'That is not the way. The warriors from the sky are above the squabblings of the clans.' "'We choose only the bravest of the plains people. "'We take no sides.' "'Your words do honour to the chapter, brother captain,' said Lambert, "'stooping to pick up something that lay in the grass.' "'Cloudrunner saw it was a metal axe-head. "'Sorrow warred with curiosity, and won. "'This is not the homecoming I had imagined,' Cloudrunner said softly. "'Where are the children gathering flowers for the autumn feast?' Where are the young bucks racing out to Count coup on our armour? Where are the spirit talkers who wish to commune with us? Dead? All dead. Lame Bear limped away, leaving Cloudrunner alone with his grief. Two heads talking studied the desiccated bodies within the lodge. One had been an old warrior. His shrivelled hand still clutched a stone axe inscribed with the thunderbird rune. The other had been a squaw. Between her skeletal fingers was the neck of an infant. She strangled the child rather than let her fall into the hands of the enemy, said Bloody Moon. The librarian noticed the undercurrent of horror in the marine's voice. He took a deep breath, trying to ignore the musty stench that filled the long house. Something evil happened here, but it happened decades ago. Two-Head's token replied, seeking to relieve Bloody Moon's superstitious fear. He wanted time to consider, to probe the events of the past. The aura of old terror almost smothered him. Shadows lay over this lodge. Something was ominously familiar about the psychic aura of the area. "'Lord Jamin,' said Bloody Moon. The librarian almost smiled. The habits of their former lives had returned in strength now that they walked once more the soil of their homeworld. Brother Librarian is my title, Bloody Moon. You are no longer my honor guard. We are both Marines. Lord, Brother Shaman, said Bloody Moon, No warriors of the plains would have wrought such havoc, do you think? We shall have to investigate, old friend we must visit the other lodge towns and speak with their chieftains if someone has returned to the customs of the reaving time we will put an end to it it was rumoured that some of the hill clans still kept to the old demon worshipping practices from the time before the emperor's people came if that were true it was up to the marines to take action somehow two heads talking did not think it would come to that this did not have the feel of demon worshippers although There was a taint in the air that was akin to it. An almost recognisable horror clawed at his mind. He fought it down, and hoped his suspicions were not true. The city reared above the plain like a soot-grimed leviathan. Cloudrunner spotted it before the others, and ordered lame bear to land the dropship in a valley, out of sight of its walls. From the brow of the hill, he studied it through monoculars. It was an ugly place. It reminded him of the hive-worlds he had visited. It covered many miles, and was enclosed by monolithic walls. Great smokestacks loomed in the distance, belching acrid chemical clouds into the greyish sky. Outside the walls, the river ran black with poisons. As Cloudrunner watched, he saw herd-elk being driven squealing from barges towards great abattoirs within the walls, From huge stone barracks, people swarmed through the streets towards enormous brick factories. Smog drifted everywhere, occasionally obscuring the grimy city and its teeming inhabitants. "'That is where Lame Bear's Metal Axe came from,' said Two-Head's talking, lowering himself to the ground beside Cloudrunner. "'I wonder who built it?' "'It's a nightmare,' murmured Cloudrunner. "'We return home to find our lodges ravaged.' and this abomination in its place. That city could hold all the clans of the peoples of the plains, and ten times more besides. Could our folk have been enslaved and taken there, brother captain? Cloudrunner remained silent, considering. If they have, then we must go down with Flamer and Stonebolter and free them. We must know more before we act. We could be outnumbered and trapped, replied the shaman. I say we go in weapons-armed, said Weasel Fierce from behind them. If we find foes, we burn them. Suppose they think the same. The soot and filth give the place an orcish look, said Lame Bear. He had been scouting further along the crest. No orc ever put stone on stone like that, counted Two-Heads talking. That is human workmanship. It is not the work of the people, said Cloudrunner. Those barracks are a hundred times the size of a lodge house, and built of brick. There is only one way to find out anything, said Two-Heads Talking. One of us must visit the city. The warriors nodded assent. Each tapped a scar tattoo to indicate that he volunteered. Two-Heads Talking shook his head. I must go. The spirits will shield me. Cloudrunner saw the rest of the warriors look at him to see what his decision would be. As captain, he could overrule the librarian. He looked at the city, then at the shaman standing quiet and proud before him. A sensation of emptiness, of futility came over him. His people, his village, had gone. As you wish, Lord Shaman. Speak to the spirits and seek their aid, he said, giving the ancient ritual answer. Bloody Moon Squad will remain here to watch over you. The rest of us will take Deathwing and seek out any surviving watchtowns. Night fell as two heads talking completed his preparations. He laid the four rune-etched skulls of his predecessors on the ground around him. Each faced one of the cardinal points of the compass and watched over an approach from the spirit realm. He lit a small bonfire in the deep hollow, cast a handful of herbs on the fire, and breathed in deeply. He touched the ceremonial winged skull on his piece and then the death's head inlaid on his belt. Lastly, he prayed to the Emperor tamer of thunderbirds and beacon of the soul path to watch over him as he made magic. Then he began to chant. The fumes from the herbs filled his lungs. He seemed to rise above his body and look down upon it. The other terminators backed away from the spirit circle. A chill stole over him, and life leached away until he was close to the edge of death. Great sobs racked his body, but he mastered himself and continued with the ritual. He stood in a cold, shadowy place. He sensed chill, white presences at the edge of his perception, clammy as mist and as cold as the grave mound. Above him he could hear the beating of mighty pinions from where Deathwing, the Emperor's steed and bearer of souls of the slain, hovered. The shaman talked with the presences, made pacts that bound them to his service, and rewarded them with a portion of his strength. He sensed the hungry spirits surge around him, ready to shield him from sight, to cloud the eyes of any who may look upon him, causing them to see only a friendly being. He walked from the circle, past the watching marines. As he crested the brow of the hill, he saw the distant city. Even at night its fires burned, lighting the sky and turning the metropolis into a giant shadow cast upon the land. Above them, through the gloom, loomed the mountains of storm. Cloudrunner wondered how Lame Bear was taking it. The big man's face was a blank mask. He was not allowing himself to think about what might have happened to his people. The hunting bear village was the last they had visited, the most remote, built in caves beneath Cloudgirt Peak. Lame Bear limped up the narrow pathway in the cliff face. Cloudrunner tried not to think of the other lodge towns they had seen. They had found nothing but desolation and desecrated graves. No living soul, except the marines, walked among the fallen totems. They had buried the bodies they had found, and offered prayers to the Emperor for the safety of their slain kin. Cloudrunner could see Weasel-fierce paws. The gaunt man's hand played with the feathered hilt of his ceremonial dagger. He studied the ledges above the paths, and seemed to sniff the air. No sentries, he said. As a buck, I raided these mountains. The hunting bears always had the keenest watches. If anyone was alive, we would have been challenged by now. No! Lame Bear shouted and ran across the lodge town's threshold into the caverns. Swapolio, overwatch, Cloudrunner ordered. Five terminators froze in position, guarding the entrance. The rest of you follow me. Helmets on, keep your eyes peeled. Weasel Fierce, establish a fix on Lame Bear. Don't lose him. Nightlights cut in as they entered the cave mouth. Dozens of tunnels led from the place. Chittering things flopped away from their lights. For a moment, Cloudrunner allowed himself to feel hopeful. If they were to find any survivors of the Plainspeople, people, it would be here. In this huge, night-black maze, Lame Bear's people could have hidden out for years, dodging any pursuit. As they followed Lame Bear's locator signal through the warren of tunnels, despair filled Cloudrunner. They passed hallways where the dead lay, Sometimes the bodies were marred by the mark of spear and axe. Sometimes they were crushed and mangled by inhuman force. Some had been ripped asunder. Cloudrunner had seen bodies butchered like that before, but told himself it was not possible here. Such a thing could not happen on his home world. in vast hulks that lay cold in space, perhaps, but not here. They found Lame Bear standing in the largest cave of all, Bones littered the floor. Scuttlers fled from their lights. Lame Bear sobbed and pointed to the walls. Paintings dating from the earliest times covered the caveside, but it was the last and highest situated representation that drew Cloudrunner's attention. There was no mistaking the four-armed malevolent form. Hatred and fear chased each other through his mind. Gene Steelers, he spat, Behind him, Lame Bear moaned. Weaselpheus gave his short, barking laugh. The sound chilled Cloudrunner to the bone. Two heads talking stalked past the city's open gates. The stench assailed his nostrils. His concentration faltered, and he could feel the spirits struggling to escape. He exerted his iron will, and the spell of protection fell into place. Studying his surroundings, He realised he had no need to worry. There were no guards. Only a tall house where a pasty-faced clerk sat, ticking off accounts. In its own way, this was ominous. The city's builders obviously did not feel threatened enough to post sentries. Two-heads talking studied the scribe. He sat at a little window, poring over a ledger. In his hand was a quill pen. He was writing by the light of a small lantern. Momentarily, he seemed to sense the librarian's presence and looked up. He had the high cheekbones and ruddy skin of the Plains people, but there the resemblance ended. His limbs seemed stunted and weak. His features had an unhealthy pallor. He gave a hacking cough and returned to his work. His face showed no sign of manhood scars. His clothes were made of some coarse woven cloth, not elk leather. No weapon sat near at hand, and he showed no resentment at being cooped up in a tiny office, rather than being under the open sky. Two heads talking found it difficult to believe that this was a descendant of his warrior culture. He pushed on through the city, picking his way fastidiously through the narrow, dirty streets that ran between the enormous buildings. The place was laid out with no rhyme or reason. Vast squares lay between the great factories, but there was no apparent plan. The city had grown uncontrolled, like a cancer. There were no sewers, and the roads were full of filth. The smell of human waste mingled with the odour of frying food and the sharp tang of cheap alcohol. Low shadowy doors of inns and food booths rimmed every square. Unwashed children scuttled everywhere. Now and again, huge, well-fed men in long blue coats pushed their way through the throng. They had facial scar tattoos and walked with an air of swaggering pride. If anyone got in their way, they lashed out at them with wooden batons. To two heads talking surprise, no one hit back. They seemed too weak-spirited to fight. As he wandered, the librarian noticed something even more horrible. All the members of the crowd, except the urchins and bluecoats, were maimed. Men and women both had mangled limbs or scorched faces. Some hobbled on wooden crutches, swinging the stumps of legs before them. Others were blind and led about by children. A dwarf with no legs waddled past, using his arms for motion, walking on the palms of his hands. They all seemed to be the accidental victims of some huge industrial process. In the darkness, by the light dancing from the hellish chimneys, they moved like shadows, scrabbling about, crying for alms, for succour, for deliverance. They called upon the Heavenly Father, the four-armed Emperor, to save them. They cursed and raved and pleaded under a polluted sky. Two heads talking watched the poor steal from the poor and wondered how his people had come to be laid so low. He remembered the tall, strong warriors who had dwelled in the towns and asked nothing of any man. What malign magic could have transformed the people of the plains into these pathetic creatures? He felt a shock as a child tugged on his arm. Tokens, elder, Tokens for food. Two heads talking sighed with relief. His spell still held. The child only saw a safe, unobtrusive figure. He could still feel the strain of binding the spirits gnawing away at him but they had not yet slipped his grasp. I have nothing for you, boy, he said. The urchin ran off, mouthing obscenities. Depressed and angry, the marines left the cave village. Cloudrunner noticed that lame bear's face was white. He gestured for the big man and weasel fierce to follow him. The two squad leaders fell in beside him. They marched up a great spur of rock and looked down into a long valley. Steelers, he said. We must inform the Imperium. Weaselfear spat over the edge of the cliff. The dark city is theirs, said Lamebear. There was a depth of hatred in his quiet voice that Cloudrunner understood. They must have conquered the people and herded them within. Some clans resisted, Cloudrunner said. He was proud of that. The fact that his clan had chosen to continue a hopeless struggle rather than surrender gave him some comfort. Our world it ended. Our time is done said Weasel Fierce, his words tolled like great sad bells within Cloudrunner's skull. Weasel Fierce was right. Their entire culture had been exterminated. The only ones who could remember the world of the Plainspeople were the marines of the Dark Angels. When they died, their clans would live only in the chapter fleet's records. Unless the Dark Angels broke with tradition and recruited from other worlds, the chapter would end with the death of the present generation of marines. Cloud Runner felt hollow. He had returned home with such high hopes. He was going to walk once more among his people, see his village again before old age took him. Now he found his world was dead, and had been so for a very long time. And we never knew, he said softly. Our clans have been dead for years, and we never knew. It was a cursed day when we rode Deathwing back to our homeworld. The squad leaders stood silent. The moon broke through the clouds. Below them, in the valley, they saw the faded outline of a giant winged skull cut into the earth. What is that? asked Weasel Fierce. It was not here when I last stalked in the valley. Lame Bear gave him an odd look. Cloudrunner knew that his old friend had never pictured the brave of an enemy clan walking in his people's sacred valley. Even after a century, the taciturn skeletal man could still surprise them. It was where our spirit-talkers made magic, answered Lame Bear. They must have tried to summon Deathwing, the bearer of the warriors from the sky. They must have been desperate to attempt such a summons. They trusted us to protect them. We never came. Cloudrunner heard Weasel Fierce growl. We will avenge them, he said. Lame Bear nodded agreement. We will go in and scour the city. We number only thirty, against possibly an entire city of stealers. The Codex is quite clear on situations like this. We should virus-bomb the planet from orbit, Cloudrunner said, listening to the silence settle. Lame Bear and Weasel Fierce looked at him, appalled. But what of our people? They still may survive, Lame Bear said, like a man without much hope. We must at least consider that possibility before we cleanse our homeworld of life. Weasel Fierce had gone pale. Cloudrunner had never seen him look so dismayed. I cannot do it, he said softly. Can you, brother captain, can you give the order that would destroy our world and our people forever? Cloudrunner felt the weight of terrible responsibility settle on him. His duty was clear. Here on this world was a great threat to the Imperium. His word would condemn his entire people to oblivion. He tried not to consider that Lame Bear might be right, that the people may not totally be enslaved by the gene-sealers, but the thought nagged at him, most of all because he hoped it was true. He stood frozen for a moment, paralysed by the enormity of the decision. The choice is not yours alone, Cloudrunner, said Weasel Fierce. It is a matter for all the warriors of the people. Cloudrunner looked into his burning eyes. Weasel Fierce had invoked the ancient ritual. By rights, it should be answered. The Terminator captain looked at Lamebear. The giant's face was grim. Cloudrunner nodded. There must be a gathering, he said. Two heads talking saw a commotion break out across the square. A squad of bluecoats forced the main beggars to one side. People were crushed underfoot as they pushed through the throng like a blade through flesh. The librarian dropped back towards the entrance of a tavern. A surly bravo with fresh scarred cheeks came too close. He raised his truncheon to strike Two Heads Talking, obviously perceiving him as one of the throng. It bounced off the carapace of his Terminator armour. The bluecoat squinted in staunchment at him, and then backed away. A palaquin borne by two squat, shaven-headed men in brown uniforms moved through the path cleared by the bully boys. Two Heads Talking looked at the sign of the four-armed man on its side, and a thrill of fear passed through him. His worst suspicions were justified. "'Arms, Elder, give us arms!' the crowd pleaded, voices merging into one mighty roar. "'Arms, Elder, give us arms!' Many had abased themselves and kneeled, stumps and grasping hands outstretched in supplication towards the palanquin. A curtain on its side was pulled back, and a short, fat man stepped out. His pale skin had a bluish tint, and he was wearing a rich suit of black cloth, a white waistcoat, and high black leather boots. A forearmed pendant dangled from a chain hanging around his neck. His head was totally hairless, and he had piercing black eyes. He gazed out at the crowd and smiled gloatingly, great jowls rippling backwards to give him a dozen small chins. He reached down and found a purse. The crowd held its breath expectantly. For a second, his gaze fell on the librarian, and he looked puzzled. A frown crossed his face. Two heads talking felt a tug on his leg and fell to one knee, although it went against the grain to kneel to anything except the image of the Emperor. He felt that malign glance linger upon him and wondered whether the fat man had somehow penetrated his bound spirit's disguise. All the squads gathered around the fire. The great logs smouldered in the dark, underlighting the faces of the marines, making them look demonic. Behind them, Deathwing sat on its landing claws, a bulwark against the darkness. He knew that beyond it lay the city of their enemy, where dwelled abomination. Nearest the fires squatted the squad leaders, faces impassive. Behind them were their men, in full battle regalia, storm bolters and flamers near at hand. Firelight glittered on the winged swords painted on their shoulder pieces. The garb was imperial, but the scarred faces that showed in the firelight belonged to the plains people. He had known these men for so long that not even two heads talking could have done a better job of reading their mood. In each stern visage he saw a thirst for vengeance and a desire for death. The warriors wished to join their clansmen in the spirit realm. Cloudrunner too felt the tug of his ancestral spirits, their clamour to be avenged. He tried to ignore their voices. He was a soldier of the Emperor. He had other duties and to his people. We must fight, said Weasel Fierce. The dead demand it. Our clans need to be avenged. If any of our people survive, they must be liberated. Our honour must be reclaimed. There are many kinds of honour, responded Bloody Moon. We honour the Emperor. Our Terminator suits are the badge of that honour. Can we risk losing all traces of our chapter's ancient heritage to the Steelers? For a hundred centuries, the armour we wear has borne marines safely through battle. Their suits will not fail us now, replied Weaselfears hotly. We can only add to their honour by slaughtering our foe. Brother Marius, Brother Polo, pray, silence, Cloudrunner said, invoking formality by the use of chapter ritual, and calling Weaselfears and Bloody Moon by the names they had taken on when they had become marines. The Terminators bowed their heads, acknowledging the gravity of the moment. Forgive us, Brother Captain, and name penance. We are at your service, Semper Fidelis, they replied. No penance is necessary. Cloudrunner looked around the fire. All eyes were upon him. He weighed his words carefully before he spoke again. We are gathered tonight, not as soldiers of the Emperor, but by ancient custom, as warriors of the people. To this I give my blessing as Captain and as war chief. We are here as speakers for our clans, joined in brotherhood, so we might speak with one voice, think as one mind, and discern the correct path for all our peoples. Cloudrunner knew his words rang false. Those present were not the speakers for their clans. They were their clans. All that was left. Still, the ritual had been invoked and must be kept to. Within this circle there will be no violence. Till the ending of this gathering... We will be as one clan. It was strange to speak those words to warriors who had fought together in a thousand battles under a hundred suns. Yet it was the ancient rite of meeting, meant to ensure peaceful discourse among the warriors of rival tribes. He saw some marines nod. Suddenly it felt right. The ways of their people had been born on this world, and while they were here, they would keep to them. In this time and space, they were bound by the ties of their common heritage. Each needed the reassurance after the trials of the day. We must speak concerning the fate of our world, and our honour as warriors. This is a matter of life and death. Let us speak honestly, according to the manner of our people. The Elder fondled his chain of office, and continued to stare at Two-Head's talking. A frown creased his high, bulbous forehead. Abruptly, he looked away and fumbled in his purse. A ragged cheer went up from the crowd as he threw handfuls of gleaming iron tokens out to them, then withdrew into his palanquin to witness the scramble. The marines watched people grovel in the dust, scrabbling for coins. He shook his head in disgust as he entered the tavern. Even the most debased Hiveworld dweller would have shown more dignity than the rabble outside. The place was nearly empty. Two heads talking looked around the packed earth floor in the crudely made tables over which slouched a few ragged, unwashed drunks. The walls were covered in rough hangings which repeated a stylized, four-armed pattern made to look like a crude star. Outside, in the distance, he heard the long, lonely wail of a steam whistle. The innkeeper leaned forward against the counter, gut straining against the bar top. Two heads talking walked over to him. As he reached the counter, he realized he had no tokens. The innkeeper stared at him coldly. "'rubbing one stubbled, broken, veined cheek with a meaty paw. "'Well,' he demanded, "'what do you want?' Two heads talking was surprised at the man's rudeness. "'The people had always been a polite folk. "'It paid to show courtesy when an offending party "'might hit you with a stone axe. "'He met the man's gaze levelly "'and exerted a portion of his will. "'He met no resistance from the man's weak spirit, "'but even so, the effort was exhausting.' The innkeeper turned away, eyes downcast, and poured a drink from a clay bottle without being asked. Outside the doorway came the sound of footsteps. The doors burst open, and a crowd of workers flooded in, bellowing orders for drink. Both men and women had gaunt, tired faces. Their hands and bare feet were just as grimy as their clothing. Two heads talking guessed that a shift had ended. He took his drink and sat in the corner. Watching the workers slump down in the chairs, listening to them listlessly curse their overseers and their lack of tokens. A group set up a dice game in the corner and gambled indifferently. After a while, Two-Heads Talking noticed that people were drifting through a doorway in the back of the tavern. He rose and followed them. No one seemed to object. The room he entered was dark and smelled of animal fat. In its centre was a pit surrounded by cheering, cursing workers. Two-Heads Talking made his way forward, and the crowd melted away around him. He stood at the edge of the pit and saw the object of everyone's attention. Down below, two Great Plains weasels were fighting, ripping long strips of flesh from each other while the audience roared and betted. Each was the size of a grown man and wore a spiked metal collar. One had lost an eye. Both were bleeding from dozens of cuts. Two heads talking was disgusted. As a youth, he had hunted weasels, matching stone axe against ferocious cunning. It had been a challenge in which the warrior gambled his life against a fierce and deadly adversary. There was no challenge to this cruel sport. It was simply a safe outlet for the bloodlust of these wary, hungry workers. The librarian departed from the pit, leaving the workers to their sport. As he left, he noticed that the bluecoat had entered the bar and was talking to the bartender. As he stepped outside, he saw that they were looking in his direction. He hurried into the smoggy night thinking that he felt inhuman eyes watching him. Cloudrunner looked at the faces around the fire. They were waiting for him to begin. He took three deep breaths. By long tradition, he must be the first to speak. A gathering of warriors was not an argument in the formal sense where words were used as weapons to count coup on the enemy. It was a pooling of experience, a telling of stories. Words must have no sharp edges on which to snag anger. He chose his carefully. When I was twelve summers old, he began, I dwelled in the Yellow Lodge among the young bucks. It was my last summer there, for I was pledged to marry Running Deer, who was the fairest maiden of my clan. Often the bucks would talk of the warriors from the sky, A hundred years had passed since their last visit, and the red star was visible again. The time was near for their return. Hawk Talon, my grandfather's grandfather, had been chosen and taken to the spirit realm to serve the great chief beyond the sky. My bloodline had acquired much honour because of it, although he had left his son fatherless and needing to found a new lodge. Silver Elk was a buck with whom I had vied for running Deer's hand, because she had chosen me. He hated me. He boasted of how he would be chosen. His words were a taunt, aimed at belittling my kinsman's honour. Silver Elk's own line had no spirits who had ridden Deathwick, and ventured beyond the sky. I was stung, and responded to his taunt. I said, if that were so, he wouldn't mind climbing Ghost Mountain, and visiting the abode of the ancestors. Cloudrunner paused to let his words sink in, to let the warriors imagine the scene. The memory seemed fresh and clear in his own mind. He could almost smell the acrid wood smoke filling the young men's lodge, and see the furs hanging from its ceiling. That was what Silver Elk had wanted me to say. He sneered, and replied that he would go to the mountain if somebody would accompany him as a witness. He looked straight at me. So I was trapped. I could not back out without dishonour. I had to go, or he would have counted coup on me. When she heard running deer begged me not to go, fearing that the spirits would take me, she was a shaman's daughter and had the witching sight. But I was young, with a young man's pride and folly, so I refused her. Seeing that I could not be swayed, she cut a braid from her hair and wove it with spells, making it a charm to return me home safely. It was a three-day trip at Hunter's Walk to Ghost Mountain. Fear was our constant companion. What had seemed possible in the warmth of the lodge seemed dreadful in the cold autumn night, when the moon was full and spirits flitted from tree to tree. I believe that if either of us had been alone, we would have turned back, for it is a terrible thing to approach the places of the restless dead at night as winter approaches. But we could show no fear, for the other was witness, and our rivalry drove us forward. Neither wanted to be the first to turn back. On the evening of the third day, we met the first warning totems, covered by the skulls of those the Sky Warriors had judged and found wanting. I felt like running then, but pride kept me moving on. We began to climb. The night was cold and still. Things rustled in the undergrowth, and the moon leered down like a witching spirit. Stunted trees hunched over the pathway like malign ghosts. We climbed until we came to the vast, empty plateau, marked by the sign of the winged skull. We were filled with a sense of achievement, and our amity was, for the moment, buried. We stood in a place few men had ever seen. We had defied the spirits and lived. Still, we were on edge. I don't know when I thought when Silver Elk pointed upwards there came a howling as if of a thousand roused ghosts and fire lit the sky perhaps i thought the spirits had chosen to strike me down for my presumption perhaps i was so filled with terror that i thought of nothing i know that i was frozen in place while silver elk turned and ran if i had been afraid before imagine how i felt when i saw the great winged shape in the distance and heard the roar of the approaching thunderbird Picture my horror when I saw it was Deathwing itself, steed of the Emperor, chooser of the slain, winged hunting skeleton. I bitterly regretted my folly. I could not move to save myself, and waited for Deathwing to strike me with its claws and release my spirit. I was surprised when the Thunderbird stooped to earth in front of me and ceased its angry roaring. Still, I could not run. Its beak gaped disgorging the massive, black-armoured forms of the Chosen Dead. On each shoulder they bore the sign of the winged blade. I knew then that I was in the realm of the spirits, for Hawk Talon, my grandfather's grandfather, stood among them. I had seen his face carved into the roof pole of our family lodge. He looked old and grey and tired, but there was still a family resemblance. To see a face so familiar and so strange in that dreadful place was somehow reassuring. It enabled me to overcome my fear. Filled with wonder, I walked forward until I stood before him, that terrible, grizzled old man whose face was so like my own. For a long time, he simply stared at me. Then he smiled and started to laugh. He clasped me to his armoured breast and shouted that it was a fortunate homecoming. He seemed just as pleased to see me. "'as I was to see him.' "'Cloudrunner paused, comparing his ancestors' return to his own. "'There was no laughter here, as there had been amongst those marines long ago. "'He understood now how glad the old man had been to see a familiar face. "'He was glad that Hawk Talon wasn't here now to see the destruction of their people. "'Of course I was overwhelmed, standing among these legendary warriors, "'speaking with my ancient blood relative.' I knew they had returned to choose their successors in the Emperor's service, and forgetting everything else, I begged to be allowed to join them. The old man looked at me and asked me whether I had any reason to stay, or any reason to regret going. I thought of running deer, and I hesitated, but I was a callow youth. Visions of glory and wonders beyond the sky filled me. What did I truly know of life? I was being called on to make a choice that I would have to live with for centuries, although I did not know it. My ancestor did. He saw my hesitation and told me better to stay in that case. I would have nothing of it, and insisted that they put me to the test. They strapped me to a steel table and opened my flesh with metal knives. I had endured the weasel-claw ritual to prove my bravery, but the pain was as nothing to what I then endured. When they opened my flesh, they implanted things, which they said would bond with my flesh and grant me spirit power. For weeks, I lay in feverish agony while my body changed. The walls danced, and my spirit fled to the edge of the cold place. While I wandered, lost and alone, one of the brothers stood beside me reciting the imperial litanies. In a vision, the Emperor came to me, riding Deathwing, mightiest of Thunderbirds. It was different from that which had borne the Sky Warrior's home. It was a beast of spirit. The other had been a bird of metal, a totem cast in its image. The Emperor spoke to me, telling me of the great struggle being waged on a thousand, thousand worlds. He showed me races other than man and the secret heart of the universe, which is chaos. He showed me the powers that lurked in the warp and exposed me to their temptations. He watched as I resisted. I knew that. If I had given in, he would have struck me down. Eventually I awoke, and I knew then that my spirit belonged to the Emperor. I had chosen to abandon my people, my world, and my bride for his service. I knew I had made the correct choice. Cloudrunner glanced around the other Terminators. He hoped he had told the story well enough to catch his listeners' minds, and remind them of the duty to the Emperor. He hoped... He had reminded them that they all had made the same decision as he had, and they would once more make the correct choice. He shook his head and touched the charm of braided hair that he still wore around his throat. He wondered if he had made the correct choice all those years ago, if he would have been happier staying with Running Deer. The bright, bold vision he had possessed in his youth had faded and lost its glamour over the years of endless warfare. I never even said goodbye to her he thought, and that somehow was the saddest thought of all. He judged that he had swayed many of the marines, but when Lame Bear leaned forward to speak, he knew the struggle had only begun. I would speak of gene-stealers, the big man said quietly. I would speak of gene-stealers, their terror and their cruelty. Two heads talking wandered the nighted streets. They seemed empty now that the workers had returned to their barracks. A slight breeze had sprung up, blowing flecks of ash through the streets, clearing the smog slightly. A bitter ash taste filled his mouth. He passed by the factories where giant steam engines stood, still working. Their din filled the air. Their pistons went up and down, like the nodding heads of maddened dinosaurs. He knew they never rested. He strode down a street of rich mansions, driven by morbid curiosity. He felt as though he'd been shown the pieces of a vast puzzle, and if only he could locate the last piece, it would all fall into place. Each mansion he passed had iron-wrought gates in which bore the signs of the night owl, the puma, and the rat. These were the totem animals of the hill clans. Two-heads talking wondered whether the chieftains of these people dwelled within. He could well believe they might make pacts with whoever had done this. Those people had dark reputations. He felt anger grow within him, driving out the sense of bewilderment. His life had been rendered meaningless. His people had been betrayed. His world had been stolen. Even the Dark Angels had been destroyed. Ten thousand years of tradition ended here. There were no more bold huntsmen of the plains for the Sky Warriors to recruit. The chapter may continue, but its heritage had been destroyed. It would never be the same again. Two Heads Talking was one of the last generation of Marines recruited from the plains people. There would be no more. As he moved beyond the mansions towards the polluted river, his spirit senses warned him he was being followed. Part of him did not care; would welcome confrontation with whatever watchers shadowed him. From up ahead, he heard a groan of pain. "We do not know where they come from," said Lambert. "Not even the curators of the Administrum know that. They appear without warning." Carried in the great mighty space hawks which drift on the tides of warp space. A shiver passed through even those hardened terminators. Cloudrunner saw the gaze of those who had faced the gene-stealers turn inward. Their faces reflected the grim memories of those encounters. Unconsciously, they sat up straighter and looked around nervously. For the first time, it was brought home to the captain that they really did face the gene-stealers once more they faced a threat that could kill them They are dreadful foes, ferocious, relentless knowing neither pity nor fear They do not use weapons, perhaps because they do not need them Their claws are capable of tearing adamantium like paper They do not use armor Their hides are so tough that they can survive for a time unsuited in vacuum They have the aspect of a beast Yet they are intelligent and organized. They are the most terrible enemies any marine has faced since the time of the Horus Heresy. How do I know this? I have faced them, as have others here. Cloudrunner shivered, recalling the times he had faced the Steelers. He remembered their chitinous visage, their gaping jaws and four rending claws. He tried not to recall their blinding, insect-like speed. It is not their fearsome battle prowess that makes the Steelers such dreadful opponents. It is something else. I will tell you of it. One hundred and twenty years ago, before I ever donned Terminator armour, I was sent with the fleet that investigated the strange silence of the Hive World Thranx. The Imperial Governor had not paid tribute for twenty years, and the Adeptus Terror decided that perhaps a gentle reminder of his sworn duties was in order. The fleet arrived bearing sections from the Dark Angels, the Space Wolves, the Ultramarines and an Imperial Guard regiment from Necromunda. As the fleet moved into drop position we expected resistance, rebellion, but the orbital monitors did not fire at us and the Governor spoke fairly to us on the comlink. He claimed that the world had been cut off by warp-storms and orcish raids. He apologised for the non-payment of tribute and offered immediate reparations. He suggested that Inquisitor Van Damme, who was in charge of the punitive expedition, descended and accept his obedience. We were naturally suspicious, but Van Damme suggested that any chance to take a world back into the Imperial fold without the expense of military action should at least be investigated. He requested that the Dark Angels provide an honor guard. We set our locators and teleported down into the Governor's reception hall. Thranx was a world encased in steel. Its natives never saw the sky. The Governor's hall was so vast, though, that clouds formed under its ceiling and rain fell on the trees that surrounded the ruler's pavilion. It was a sight to stir the blood. Long ranks of guardsmen flanked the curving metal road that led to the pavilion. The pavilion itself floated on suspenders above an artificial lake. The governor sat on a throne carved from single industrial cultured pearl, flanked by two beautiful blind maidens who were his court telepaths. He bade us welcome and showed us the tribute. It was brought from vaults by specially bred slaves grey-skinned eunuchs with muscles like an no ogrin's. Even so, they could barely carry the chests. They paraded past us in a seemingly endless procession, carrying industrial diamonds, gold-inlaid bolters, suits of ceramic armour and jade. All the time the governor, Huak kept up an endless amenable chatter. We watched, dazzled and beguiled by his smooth voice and affable manner. As the long day wore on, we simply began to accept that there was no need to fight, and we should take the tribute and go home. Our minds were pleasantly befuddled, and we were prepared to agree to anything our gracious host suggested when the great cryogenic coffins were brought forth. Huwok claimed that they were his greatest treasures. It is a measure of how under his sway we were that we almost took them without thinking. It was two heads talking who said no, he stood there for a moment, like a man bemused, and then he began to chant. It was as if cobwebs had been lifted from our eyes, and we saw the snare that had been so subtly set for us. The spell of the Magnus, for such was Huac, was lifted, and we saw to our horror that we had almost taken 2 Jean gene-steeler coffins back to our fleet. All that afternoon, as our minds had been lulled by the long slow march, Huak had been in certain subtle, mystical tendrils into our minds. Still, so near to be enthralled were we that we almost protested when Two Heads Talking riddled Huak and his two apprentices with bolt of fire. Only the living dreadnought Hawk Talon joined in the firing. We reacted slowly when he warned us to defend ourselves. Huak's guardsmen almost had us. But we were marines. No sooner had they opened up their LAS rifles, than we returned fire with our bolters, cutting them down. Van Damme tried to contact the fleet, but our cumulinks were being jammed, and we could not teleport out. There was nothing for it. We had to fight our way to the planet's surface, and hope that a dropship could reach us. It seemed as if the whole planet had turned against us, and that was more or less what had happened. Two hundred of us fought our way out of the audience room. We were met by armed men, unarmed children and their mothers. All threw themselves against us with insane ferocity. As we cut them down, they showed no fear, only a strange unholy joy. The whole world had been infected. Our trip to the surface was a nightmare. We battled along dark corridors, crawled up access ladders, and through narrow hatches never meant for marines. I saw Steelfist tumble back headless from one hatchway. Van Damme lobbed a handful of croconades through, and we were splattered with the remains of a full grown stealer. My brother, Red Sky, was pulled down by a wave of feral children with explosives in their hands. They detonated them as they crawled over his body. He did not live. Twice in the endless corridors we were almost overrun. It came to -to hand-to-hand combat with pure-strained Steelers. Twenty of our brothers were cut down before two heads-talkings force-axe and Cloud Runner's power sword carried us clear. It was guarding the final hatchway that I lost the use of my leg. A Steeler cut right through the floor and grabbed at me, trying to pull me down. I blasted frantically at it. The last thing I remember was its horrid, leering face as it pulled me down towards it. Around it were a group of Thraxians who stroked and pushed against it fondly. The others told me what had happened when I woke up in the medical bay of the ship with a new bionic leg, two heads talking, and Cloudrunner had pulled me clear and carried me to the roof of the world where the dropship waited. There was only one thing to do. Order the Exterminatus, the whole place was sterilized from orbit with virus bombs Later, inquisitorial investigators ascertained that the whole business had begun only 60 years before when an unrecorded Space Hulk had swung through the system It had taken only three generations for the stealers to infect an entire world for that is how they reproduce, they turn people into the hosts for their offspring Their victims endure this willingly, due to the Steelers' hypnotic powers. Many nights I have lain awake, wondering whether we could have saved the world if only we had arrived sooner. Perhaps, if we had been able to eliminate the Steelers before the cancer had spread, we would not have had to order the exterminatus. Cloudrunner could see the warriors had been swayed and angered by Lamebear's tale. He could tell that they were considering the assimilation of the people as breeding stock, and the possibility that by swift action, they may prevent it. Let us go, said Weasel Fierce, leaping to his feet. Let us enter the city and kill the Steeler's spawn. Several of the warriors made to accompany him. Wait, said Bloody Moon, the gathering is not over, and I would speak. Anger and impatience drove Two Heads talking towards the sound of pain. By the bank of the river, in the shadow of a monstrous factory, he saw that a group of bluecoats had pinned an old man to the wall and were slowly and surely beating him to death with their truncheons. One of their number held a lantern, occasionally giving a calm, precise order. Talk seditious this is nonsense, will you?' said one bravo. His stroke ended with a crack of breaking ribs. The old man groaned and fell to his knees. The other bluecoats laughed. Breach heresy against the imperial cult and the warriors from the sky, eh? What makes you old fools do it? By the emperor, I thought we'd got the last of you. Their victim looked up at him. You are deluded. The vision. The warriors from the sky would not have built this place, and herded us here the way Elksa herded to the slaughter. Nor would they have broken the burial mounds of our people. Your masters are evil spirits summoned by the Hymn Clans. Not true sky warriors deathwing will return and rend them asunder silence blaspheming old name said the leader of the bluecoats you wish to prove your courage do you perhaps we should return to the old ways drunkard and practice the weasel claw ritual on you the old man coughed blood do what you will i have morning star the line of running deer and silver elk i have the witching sight I tell you that the spirits walk. Ancient powers stalk the land. The red star burns bright in the sky. A time of trouble is coming. Is that why you chose to start ranting this night? I thought the only spirits that talked to you came from a bottle, said another blue-coat, kicking Morning Star in the ribs. The old man groaned. Two Heads Talking made his way forward through the mist until he emerged in the lantern light. The blue-coat leader spoke to him. Go away, buck. "'This is Warrior Lodge business. "'If you don't want to join this drunkard in the river, you'll leave now.' "'You dishonour the idea of the Warrior Lodge,' said Two-Heads talking, quietly. "'Depart now, and I will spare you. "'Remain a heartbeat longer, and I will surely grant you death.' "'The old man looked at him, awestruck. Two heads talking could see the winged skull-tattoo of a shaman on his forehead. "'A few bravos laughed, some the wiser ones.' heard the soft menace in the Marine's voice, and backed away. The leader gestured for the bluecoats to attack. Take him! Two-heads talking parried the swipe of a truncheon with his forearm. There was a metallic ring as the bludgeon snapped. He broke the Bravo's nose against the butt of his force axe, then lashed out with his foot, driving it into another bluecoat's stomach with inhuman force. As the man bent double, the librarian chopped down on his neck, breaking it. The bluecoats swarmed over him, Their truncheons were as ineffective as twigs against a bear. A few tried to grab his arms and immobilize him. He shrugged them off easily, swinging killing blows with weapon and elbow. Where he struck, men died. As the battle lust swept over him, he felt the bound spirit slip away. He knew that he stood revealed in his true form. The last of the bluecoats turned to run. Two heads talking, hooked an arm around his neck and twisted. There was a crunch of shattering vertebrae. The old man gazed on him with religious intensity. "'The spirit spoke truthfully,' he said, as if he did not quite believe it. He reached out and touched him, making sure he was real. "'You have come at last to free the people from their bondage to the false emperor and lead them back to the plains. What is your name, Sky Warrior?' In my youth it was two heads talking, apprenticed to spirit hawk. When I entered the service of the true emperor— I took the name Lucian. He could see the tears running down the old man's scarred cheeks. Tell me, old man, what has happened to our folk? How did they come to fall so low? It began when I was a buck, said Morningstar, wiping his face. One summer night the sky burned and there was a great roaring. A trail of fire raced across the sky and there was an explosion. Where we are now was a vast crater, and in the centre, where the temple of the four-armed emperor stands, was a great red-hot pile of metal. Some people thought the Sky Warriors had returned, that the roaring was the voice of their thunderbird. The shamans knew that this could not be, for Deathwing returns only once every hundred years in autumn, and it had only been fifty years since the red star was last visible. We were pleased, because we thought we might ride Deathwing. Most of us had reckoned on being old men when the Sky Warriors came again. Those who met our chiefs were not the armoured warriors of legend. They were feeble, pale-skinned men who claimed they had come from the Emperor to show us the way and to build an earthly paradise. They preached the virtues of tolerance and brotherly love and an end to warfare. The chiefs sent them packing, which was a mistake, for when honeyed words did not succeed, they tried force of arms. They allied with the hill clans and gave them metal blades which our weapons could not withstand. Eventually, clans were forced to trade for the new weapons in order to withstand their enemies. Tales were told of how witching spirits with four arms and terrible claws destroyed our warriors. Soon, the pretenders ruled the plains, taking slaves and destroying utterly those who opposed them. Then came the building of this city, using slave labour and paying the freemen in trade tokens. Suddenly, the old man's eyes went wide with horror. He was looking past Two Heads talking, and into the night. The librarian turned, and from the mist, shapes emerged. One was the fat man, who earlier had been riding in the palaquin. Flanking him were two huge four-armed figures. Their carapaces glistened like oil. They raised large claws, which glittered in the moonlight. We would have told you all this if only you had asked, said the fat man, gazing at two-heads talking with his dark magnetic eyes. The librarian flexed his fingers, and the force axe hummed a song of death in his hand. It was in the time of Commander Adriel, a hundred summers gone, said Bloody Moon. We were aboard the battle barge Angelus Morte on Sector Edge Patrol when the alarms went off. Sector probes indicated that a space hulk had dropped from warp space near us. Deep scanning revealed nothing. We were ordered to investigate. We crouched within the boarding torpedoes and were fired at the hulk. It was unpowered and dark when we disembarked, so, helmet lights on, we moved to secure the perimeter. We met no resistance, but as per standard operational procedures, we proceeded with extreme caution. We identified the Hulk as Prison of Lost Souls. A appropriate name, as it turned out. We moved nervously through the shadowy couriers, for the taint of the warp still hung around the craft. It made us uneasy. At first there was no sign of danger. Then we came across the bodies of some space wolves. They had been riddled with a of fire. We could not guess how long they had lain there, perhaps since the Hulk had last entered normal space. It might have been ten years, or ten thousand. We did not know. The tides of warp space are unpredictable, and time flows strangely there. Brother Sergeant Conrad ordered us to be wary. Then a terrible thing happened. A space wolf's corpse sat upright, its eyes glowing crimson. You are doomed, it told us. Every one of you will die as I have. We riddled it with fire from our weapons, but still... Its horrible whispers echoed in our minds. We began to fall back. All around us, blips suddenly appeared in our senses. They were running parallel to us, trying to cut us off from the boarding torpedo. At corridor intersections, we caught sight of armoured figures. We exchanged a few shots with them. I hit one and heard it scream over the comlink. They were using the same frequencies as we were. When we realised that, our blood ran cold. We asked ourselves, could these be marines? We did not have to wait long for an answer. They swarmed down the corridors towards us in a vast wave. They were garbed in the armour of marines, but they were horribly mutated. Some clutched rusty bolters in tentacles instead of hands. Some had faces that were moist and green and slimy like toads. Some had claws and extra limbs. Some dragged themselves along, leaving a trail of mucus behind them. The mark of Chaos was upon them. They called on Horus and those powers that are better not named. And we knew them. They were renegades, survivors from the age of heresy, who had pacted with Chaos in exchange for eternal life. The fighting became close and heavy. They had the weight of numbers, but we had our Terminator armour and the strength of righteousness. For a moment it looked as though they might overwhelm us but our thunder-hammers and lightning claws came into play, and we cut through them inexorably. They fought like demons, and they had the strength of the damned, but eventually we won. I stood looking down at the body of my last foe, and a thought occurred to me. This man had once been a marine like myself. He had undergone the same training and indoctrination as I had. He had sworn to serve the Emperor, and yet he had betrayed humanity. How could this be? How could a true marine become forsworn? It seemed unlikely that he would suddenly turn his back on a pattern of a lifetime and packed with darkness. What had chaos to offer him? Wealth? We have no use for the baubles that other men covet. We already have the finest of everything that a man could wish for. Sensual gratification? We are taught its transitory nature. Power? We know true power, which is the will of the Emperor who among us could equal his sacrifice. No. As I stood over his body, I came to understand. He had deviated, not in one leap, but in small steps, by increments. First, he had come to place trust in the Warmaster. An easy step, for was not Horace the chief champion of the Emperor. Then he had come to follow the Warmaster. Who would not? A soldier follows his commander. Then he had come to believe Horace divine. An easy mistake. Was not the great heretic one of the Primarchs of the First Founding, gifted with godlike powers second only to the Emperor himself? Thus did he stray from the path of truth, until eventually he lost both his life and his soul. It is a way that is open to anyone, one small mistake leading to another, until at last the great error is reached. This I came to realize as I studied the body of the Renegade on the Prison of Lost Souls i resolved then and there to submit myself to the emperor's will i knew that all our regulations and our codes have a purpose and it is not for us to question them for they keep us from the path of the deviant around the fire there was silence Cloudrunner could tell the bloody moon's words had touched a chord within the marines he found himself examining his own conscience for signs of heresy the implication of bloody moon's tale was quite clear if they lapsed from the service of the emperor they were also taking the first step down the road to damnation. He had reminded them that they were marines, the chosen of the Emperor. If they did not keep the faith, who would? For a long time, all was quiet. Then Weaselface indicated his wish to talk. I will speak of death, he said. The death of men and the death of worlds. Two-heads talking felt the impact of the Fat Magnus's will like a physical blow. The great dark eyes seemed to swell, to become bottomless pits into which the librarian fell. At his feet, Morningstar whimpered. With a wrench, the Marine broke the psychic contact, thankful that his librarian's armour was equipped with a psychic hood. The Magnus was strong, and two-heads talking was already tight. The Steelers raced towards him. The librarian raised his storm-bolter and sent out a hail of shells. Tracer fire ripped the night apart. The leading gene-stealer was shredded by the heavy bullets. The other dodged with inhuman speed. Morningstar leapt between the librarian and his assailant. A claw flickered and the old man's body was torn in half. Two heads talking lashed out with his axe, willing it to strike hard and its blade burned coldly as it passed through the Steeler's neck. He leapt back to avoid its reflexive death strike. You cannot escape. Why struggle? The fat man concentrated, and a halo of power played around his head. The librarian hosed him down with fire, but some force intercepted the shells, causing them to explode harmlessly a few feet from his target. Two heads talking strode forward, swinging the axe. He felt his own power build within him as the blade arced towards its target. Something stopped it a foot away from the Magnus's head. Great muscles bulged under his armour as he forced it forward. Servo motors whined as they added their strength to his. Slowly, the Marine forced the blade towards his enemy. Sweat ran down the fat man's brow as he concentrated. A look of fear passed across his face. He could not save himself. And he knew it. He gave a single shriek as his concentration lapsed. The force axe sheared through him from head to groin. Two heads talking felt the Magnus's psychic death scream echo through the night. He sensed hundreds of minds answer it. In the distance, through the deadening curtain of mist, he heard the sound of scuttling coming ever closer. Knowing his only chance of survival lay in swift flight, two heads talking turned and ran our world is dead said weasel some marines muttered about the fact he was addressing them directly rather than keeping to the ritual he silenced them with a short chopping gesture of his right hand when he spoke again his tone was scathing and savage this ritual is a sham it comes from a time that is ended why pretend otherwise you may wish to delude yourselves by keeping with the old ways but i do not You can speak in parables about our oaths to the Emperor, the horror of the stealers, or the nature of damnation. I choose to speak the truth. Our people are dead, or enslaved, and we sit here like old women, asking ourselves what to do. Have we been put under a spell? When were we ever so indecisive? A true warrior has no choice in this matter. We must avenge our people. Our weapons must taste enemy blood. It would be the coward's way not to face them. But if we fail... If we fail, so be it. What do we have to live for? How many summers do we have left before we die of old age, or are encased in the cold metal body of a living dreadnought? He fell silent and glared around the fire. To Cloudrunner's surprise, he looked down, and the fury seeped out of him. I am old, he said softly. Old and tired, I have seen more than two hundred summers. In a few more, I will be dead anyway. I had hoped to gaze again on my kin before then, but it is not to be. This is my only regret. Cloudrunner could see the weariness in him, felt its echo in his own mind. Every man about the fire had served the emperor for centuries; their lifespan increased by the process that had turned them into marines. If I had remained among the people. Weaselfear said, I would be dead by now. I chose another path that have lived longer, longer perhaps than any mortal should. It is a time for an ending. We're better than here, on our homeworld, among the bones of our kin. The day of the plains people is done. We can avenge them, and we can join them. If we fall in combat, we shall have had warriors' deaths. I wish to die as I have lived. Weapons in hand, foes before me. I believe this is what we all want. Let us do it. All was quiet except for the crackling of the fire. Cloudrunner looked from face to face and saw death was written in each of them. Weasel Fierce had voiced what they all felt since first seeing the shattered lodges. They had become wraiths, walking in the ruins of elder days. There was nothing left for them here except memories. If they departed now, all that loomed before them was old age an inevitable death. This way, at least, their ending would have a meaning. I say we go in. If the contamination has not spread too far, we can free any survivors, said Lame Bear. Cloudrunner looked at Bloody Moon. Providing we command Deathwing to virus bomb the planet if we fail, he said. The rest of the warriors put their right fists forward, signifying assent. They all looked at him, waiting to see what he had to say. He once more felt the pressure of command fall on him. He considered the destroyed lodges at his own loss and weighed them against his imperial duty. Nothing could bring back the Plains people, but perhaps he could save their descendants. But that was not all there was to it, he realised. He wanted the satisfaction of meeting his foes face to face. He was angry. He wanted to make the Steelers suffer for what they had done, and he wanted to be there when they did. He wanted vengeance for himself and for his people. It was as simple as that. Such a decision was not the correct one for an Imperial officer, but it was the way of his clan. In the end, to his surprise, he found out where his true loyalty lay. I say we fight, he said at last, but we fight as warriors of the people. This battle is not for the Emperor, it is for our murdered clans. Our last battle shall be fought in accordance with our ancient ways. Let us perform the rite of Deathwing. Two Heads Talking ran for his life. Through the darkened streets, Jean Stealers pursued, loping along, swift and deadly. He sensed their presence all around. He leapt over a pile of rubbish which lay in his path and swept round a corner into a main road. Two workers poked their heads through a doorway to see what was going on. They swiftly withdrew. Two Heads Talking ran wearily. His heart was pounding, his breathing ragged. The strain of maintaining the spell of concealment for so long had sapped his strength. He wondered how long he could keep up this pace. He risked a swift glance over his shoulder. A gene-stealer had just rounded the corner. He fired his storm bolter at it, but his shot was inaccurate, and the stealer lurched back into cover. Sensing danger in front of him, he turned. From out of a shadowy doorway, a stealer uncoiled. He had just enough time to raise the force axe before it sprang. He thrust the blade out before him, chopping into the monster's chest. The momentum of the thing's charge knocked him over. A claw cut into his arm, searing it with pain. If his blow had not landed clearly, he realized, he would have been dead. Ignoring the pain, he rolled under his belly, catching a clear glimpse of his pursuers as they charged. He squeezed the trigger of his bolter and stitched a line of fire across their chests. The strength of the armour allowed him to hurl off the ambush's carcass with ease. He continued on his way. Not much further, he thought, forcing himself to reel onward. He could see the huge walls jutting upward above nearby buildings. He recited a spell to free his mind of pain and made for the gates. His heart sank when he saw what awaited him. A mass of hunched, evil-looking men with dark, piercing eyes. Some held ancient-looking energy weapons. Some gripped blades in their three hands. Towering over them were pure strained gene-stealers, flexing their claws menacingly. Two heads talking came to a halt, facing his foes. For a moment, they eyed each other in respectful silence. The librarian commended his spirit to the Emperor. Soon, Deathwing would be carrying him off. His bolt was almost empty. With only his force-axe, he knew he could not withstand so many. As if at an unspoken signal, the gene-stealers and their brood surged forward. A bolt from an energy weapon burned into his armour, melting one of the skulls on his chest plate. He gritted his teeth and returned fire, cutting a great swathe of death. There was a loud click as his bolt had jammed. He did not have the time to clear it, so he charged to meet his foes, chanting his death chant. He rushed into a sea of bodies that pressed against him, hitting him with blades and rending claws. He summoned the last dregs of his strength to power his force-axe, and swung it in a great double arc. He had lopped off heads and limbs with a will, but for every foe who fell, another stepped into place. He could not guard himself against all their blows, and soon he bled from scores of great wounds. Life fled from him. Deathwing has come, he thought, just before a blow smashed into his head, and all consciousness fled. Cloudrunner paused briefly before he painted out his personal cloud and thunderbolt insignia on his armor's right shoulder. He felt changed. By blanking out his imperial insignia, he had blanked out part of himself, cut himself off from part of his history. Slowly, he began to etch in new totem signs on the armour, the marks of vengeance and death. As he did so, he felt the powers of the totem spirits begin to enter him. He looked at Weasel Fierce. The gaunt man had finished painting out all the icons on his armour. It was now white, the colour of death, except on its left shoulder, where the skull had been left unchanged. It seemed, somehow, appropriate. They performed a rite that dated back to ancient times, before the Emperor had come to tame the Thunderbirds. Only once before had Cloudrunner seen it performed. As a boy, he had watched a party of old warriors, sworn to vengeance, paint their bodies white, and go after a horde of hill-clan raiders that had killed a small child. They had painted their bodies the funeral colour, because they did not expect to return from facing so overwhelming a foe. Bloody Moon looked over from beside the fire and gave him a weak grin. Cloudrunner walked over to him. Ready, old friend? he asked. Bloody Moon nodded. Cloudrunner bent over the fire and put his hands into the ash. He pressed his palms, fingers together, flat against his face, making the sign of death ring on each cheek. I wish Two-Head's talking would return, said Bloody Moon, repeating Cloudrunner's gesture. He may yet surprise you. Bloody Moon looked doubtful. Cloudrunner gestured for the warriors to assemble. They formed into a circle around the dead fire. One by one, they began to chant their death songs. Even as they carried him through the long steel corridors, two heads talking knew he was dying life leaked from his wounds with every drop of blood that dribbled over his bearers he became weaker it was like some evil dream being borne down dimly lit tunnels by the hunched demonic figures of the gene sealer brood the librarian watched these events through a fog of pain wondering why he was still alive part of his mind realized he was within whatever vessel had carried this brood to his homeworld. Agony lanced through him as one of his bearers jolted him slightly. It took all of his willpower not to scream. They entered a long hall in which a hunched, dreadful figure waited. He was placed on the floor in front of it. It cocked its head to one side, studying him. Tears ran down the librarian's face from the pain as he forced himself to his feet. Genestealer guards raced forward, but the huge creature glanced at them, and they froze in position. Two heads talking stood unsteadily, knowing he faced a stealer patriarch. He had heard dim legends of such a thing, the progenitors of entire broods, the most ancient of their lines. He looked into his enemy's eyes. He felt an almost electric shock pass through his body as their minds made contact. The librarian found himself confronted by a foe that was ancient, implacable, deadly. His mind reeled under the assault of its ferocious will. He felt an urge to kneel, to do homage to this ancient being. He knew it was worthy of his respect. With an effort, he managed to restrain himself. He reminded himself that this was the being that had destroyed his people. He made to throw himself at it, to aim a killing blow with his good arm. He sprang, but his legs gave way underneath him, and the patriarch caught him easily, almost gently, and held him at bay with its claws. The long ovipositor in its tongue flickered out, but did not touch him. Suddenly, he found himself engaged in a bitter, psychic struggle. Tendrils of alien thought insinuated themselves into his mind. He blocked them, chopping them off with blades of his hatred. He countered with a psychic bolt of his own, but it was stopped by an ancient will that seemed impervious to outside influence. The patriarch exerted his full power, and two heads talking felt his defences begin to buckle under the terrible pressure. The cold, focused power of the gene-stealer was enormous. Even fresh, two heads talking, doubted he could have matched it. Now, strength fading because of his wounds, exhausted because of his earlier struggles, he could offer no contest at all. His outer screen fell, and the patriarch was within his mind, sorting through his memories, absorbing them into itself. For a second, while it was disorientated, he tried a psychic thrust. The Steeler countered easily, but for a moment they met mind to mind. Strange alien memories and emotions washed over the Librarian, threatening to drown him. He saw the Patriarch's past spread out before him. He saw the long trail that led through despoiled worlds and past many children. He saw the Hive World it had fled from in a fast ship just before the virus bombs fell. With a shock, he realized that he had been there himself, on thranks, and that the creature had recognized his aura from then. He saw the ship crippled by an Imperial battle barge, and barely able to make the jump into warp space. He experienced the long struggle to return to normal space, and the frozen eternities it took to escape and crash-land the crippled ship on new virgin worlds. He saw the pitifully few survivors emerge, only a few pure strains, and the three hybrid texts. He saw them make axes from the wreckage of the ship for trade with the tribesmen, and he watched them start the long struggle to establish themselves on a hostile world. He was gratified as each web of psychic contact expanded with each new brood member. He felt cold satisfaction at the destruction of the tribes and the knowledge that soon a new industrial base would be built. The ship would be repaired. New worlds to conquer would be within reach. For a bleak moment, despair filled Two-Head's talking. He saw the Steelers planning to spread to and infect new worlds. He could do nothing to stop this old, invincible entity. He almost gave in. He could see no way out. Death loomed, and that thought gave him pause. He knew what he must do. Part of him gave way before the patriarch's assault. Another part willed his spirit towards oblivion. He stood once more in the cold place, sensed far off the spirit of the Emperor, bright and shining as a star. Near at hand were the angry ghosts. The patriarch was a hungry, ominous presence, determined to enslave him. Somewhere in the distance, he could hear the thunderous pinions of Deathwing coming to claim him. Too late, the Patriarch realised what he was doing and tried to break the link. Two heads talking focused all of his hatred, anger and fear and held the link open, a task made easier by their earlier intimate contact. The Patriarch struggled frantically, but could not free himself. The wingbeats came closer, drowning the Librarian in a roar that might have been a hurricane or his own last breath. From the middle of the vortex of agony, he was borne up into darkness. The maelstrom sucked in the patriarch. It died, slain by the librarian's death agony. Briefly, Two Heads Talking felt his foe vanish, felt the sense of loss from its brood. As the librarian's spirit rose higher, he reached out and touched the minds of his comrades, bidding them farewell, telling them what they must do. Then Two Heads Talking knew no more. Cloudrunner felt the presence as he stared into the fire. He looked up and saw two heads talking standing before him. The librarian looked pale. His face was distorted by agony, his body gashed by dreadful wounds. He knew this was the spirit vision, that the old shaman was dead. For a moment he thought he heard the sound of titanic wingbeats and saw the mightiest of thunderbirds soaring towards the moon. The presence vanished, leaving Cloudrunner feeling alone and cold. He shivered in the sudden chill. He knew he had been touched by Deathwing's passing. He looked towards the others and knew that they had seen the same thing. He raised a hand in a gesture of farewell and then swept it down for the marines to advance. Filled with determination, the white-armoured Terminators marched towards the distant city. Cloudrunner sat enthroned and looked down upon his visitors. His people were drawn up in long ranks, forming a corridor along which the marines advanced warily. They were led by a captain and a librarian. From the doorway, the huge armoured form of the dreadnought performed overwatch. Cloudrunner found the sight of that old familiar form comforting. He saw the uneasy, worshipful faces of his people look to him for reassurance. He kept his face grim and calm. He sensed the Battle Brothers' unease at the strangeness of the folk within the Great Lodge House. They held their bolters ready, as if expecting violence to erupt at any moment. Cloudrunner was glad to see them. Since Lame Bear's death he had felt very alone. He spotted several familiar faces among the oncoming imperial warriors. Memories of the old days in the chapter house flooded back. He took three breaths, touched the ancient, white painted suit beside him for luck, and then spoke. Greetings, Brother Sky Warriors, he said. "'Greetings, Brother Rick Easel,' said the Marine leader, suspiciously. Cloudrunner rubbed his facial scar tattoos with one gnarled hand, and then grinned. "'So, they made you a captain, a broken knife?' "'Yes, Brother Rick Easel. They made me a captain when you failed to return,' he paused, obviously waiting for an explanation. "'It took you ten years to come looking for the Dark Angels' honour suits?' the old man asked, with a hint of mockery. "'There has been war.' A great migration of orcs through the Septenium Obscura. The chapter was called to serve. During that time, the absence of our Terminators was felt grievously. You have an explanation for this, of course. The marines stared at Cloudrunner coldly. It was as if he was a stranger to these grim youths, or worse, a traitor. He remembered the first time he had stood among marines, and, for the first time in long years, became aware of their uncanny quality. He felt isolated and uneasy. These are not our people, Cloudrunner. What happened here? asked a deep, rolling voice. He recognised it as the Dreadnoughts. Suddenly, he did not feel so alone. Hawk Talon was there, hooked into the life-support systems of the Dreadnought. There was at least one person present who was on his side, who was old enough to understand. It was like their first meeting under the shadow of Deathwing, "'when he had sighted that one familiar face among strangers. "'No, are not forefather. They are not. "'They are the untainted survivors of Jean Thieler Conquest.' "'He heard the shock murmur of marines, "'saw the way that they instinctively brought their weapons to bear on the lodge people. "'You had better explain, Brother Rickiesel,' said Broken Knife. "'Cloudrunner found himself telling his tale to the astonished marines.' He told them of the Terminator Company's landing, and of the discovery of the devastation that had been wrought by the gene-stealers. He told them of the gathering, and of the choice the warriors had made, of Two-Head's talking spirit walk, and the Terminator's final march on the city. He spoke to them in the intricate syntax of the imperial tongue, not the language of the plains people. We marched through the black gates, and were assaulted by stealers. At first they seemed confused, as if they had suffered a great shock. They attacked in small groups with no pattern, no guiding intelligence, and we cut them down. We pushed through crowds of screaming people as we followed our librarian's locator beacon towards the city centre. Huge, pure strength dealers erupted from buildings as we advanced. They attacked with insane fury, but without thought, so we bested them easily. In the centre of the city we found a temple, a building that obscenely parodied the Imperial cult dominated by a huge forearmed armed statue of what was intended to be the Emperor. We toppled it into the street, and beneath it found an entrance into the underworld. Down we went, into cold metal corridors. We passed through airlocks and bulkheads. It was like a buried spacecraft. We still followed the locator fix, determined to reclaim Two-Heads Hawking's armour and avenge his death. At first we made easy progress against isolated Steeler attacks, but then a change occurred. For a while, there was peace. We exchanged wary looks. Bloody Moon asked if we could have possibly killed them all. I can now picture the puzzled look on his face. It was still there when a Steeler dropped through the air vent and took his head off. I blasted the thing with bolt of fire, reducing it to bloody mush. Now the Steelers began to attack again, but this time their attacks were coordinated, guided by some malign intelligence. It was as if they had been leaderless for a time, but a new fiend had taken charge. They flanked us through parallel corridors, dropped through vents in the ceiling. Hordes of Steelers and their human brood attacked from all sides. Waves of them scuttled forward with blinding speed, threatening to overwhelm us with sheer numbers. It was a horrible sight, watching those great armoured beasts race closer, ignoring their kin as they were cut down. Still they came. Our point men and rearguard were ambushed and killed. The threats came so fast, we didn't have time to respond. I saw a score of them slain by flame of fire, and the stench that filled the air was indescribable. They spent their lives recklessly in their blind lust to kill us. There was a sense of terrible, oppressive anger in the air. It was as if they had a personal score with us and were prepared to die to settle it. Any other squad, even other Terminators, would have been beaten back by the sheer fury of the attack. But we wore the mark of Deathwing. Our funeral dirges had been sung. Fear was not in us, and we had our own scores to settle. We pushed forward inch by torturous inch. Blood washed the corridors as we fought our way into a great central chamber. There, we found the body of two heads talking, He was dead, his body rent by great wounds. Nearby lay the body of a patriarch, not a mark upon him. The hall was full of foes, pure strain and brood. A handful of us had fought our way into the throne room. We faced many times our number. For a moment, we stood exchanging glares. I think both sides sensed they faced their ultimate enemy, that the outcome of this fight would decide the fate of this world. There was quiet in the hall, silence except for the cycling of our breathers. I could feel my heart beating. My mouth felt dry, but I was strangely calm, sure that I soon would be greeted by the spirits of my ancestors. The Steelers formed up, and we raised our bolters to the firing position. At an unspoken signal they charged, mouths open but making no sound. A few of the brood fired ancient energy weapons. Beside me, a battle-brother fell. We laid down a barrage of fire that tore the first wave to pieces. Nothing could have lived through it. Everything we fired at died. But there was just too many of them. They swarmed over us, and the final conflict began in earnest. I saw Weasel Fierce go down beneath a pile of steelers. His bolter had jammed, but he fought on, screaming taunts and insults at his foes. The last I saw of him, he was tearing the head from a Stealer, even as it punched a claw through his chest. Thus passed the greatest warrior of our generation. Lame Bear and I fought back to back, circled about by our enemies. Power Glove and Power Sword smote the Steelers as we cut them down. If there had only been a few more pure strain, things would have gone differently that day. But most of them seemed to have died in the initial futile attacks. As it were, things were close. Lamebear fell, wounded, and I found myself breast to breast with a huge armoured horror. The leader knocked my sword from my hand with a sweep of a mighty claw. I thanked the Emperor for the digital weapons in my power glove, and I sprayed the monstrosity's eyes with poison needles, blinding it. In the brief respite, I found time to bring my Storm Bolter to bear and slay it. I looked around. Only Terminators stood in the hall. We whooped with joy to find ourselves still alive, and then the number of our fallen struck us, and we stood in appalled silence. Only six of us survived. We did not count the number of Steelers fallen. In the world above, the children of the Plains people waited. A huge crowd had gathered outside the temple to see the outcome of our battle. They looked at us, awestruck. We had destroyed their temple and killed their gods. They did not know whether we were demons or redeemers. We looked on at the weary creatures who were the only remnants of our former clans. We had won and we had reclaimed our world. Still, our victory seemed hollow. We had saved our descendants from the Steelers, but our way of life was gone. As we stood before the assembled throng, it struck me what we must do. The Emperor himself provided inspiration in that moment. I explained my plan to others. We drove the crowds from the city and assembled them on the plains outside. We searched for traces of the brood among them but there were none. The Steeler Taint seemed to have been destroyed in our vengeance war. I walked through the factories and past the toppled chimneys. Then we took our flamers and burnt the city to the ground. We divided the people up into six new tribes and said our goodbyes to each other, for we knew we would likely never meet again. Then we led our descendants away from the still blazing city. Lame Bear took his folk to the mountains. I brought my people to my old village, and we rebuilt it. I do not know what became of the others. I have told these people I was sent by the Emperor to lead them back to the old ways. I have taught them how to hunt and fish and shoot in the old manner. We do battle with the other tribes. One day, they will again be worthy of becoming Sky Warriors. Cloudrunner fell silent. He could see the Battle Brothers had been moved by his tale. Broken Knife turned to the librarian and Cloudrunner felt the pressure of mind-to-mind contact. Brother Echiziel speaks the truth. Brother Captain Gabriel, said the librarian. Broken Knife looked up at the old marine. Forgive me, brother. I have misjudged you. It seems the chapter at the Plains People owe you and your warriors a great debt. Semper Fidelis, said Cloudrunner. You must take the suits. They belong to the chapter. Broken Knife nodded. Perhaps a favour. In honour of our dead, leave the suits the colour of Deathwing. The deeds of our brothers should be remembered. It will be so, said Broken Knife. Deathwing will be remembered. The marines turned and filed out past the dreadnought. The mighty being stood there, watching Cloudrunner with inhuman eyes. The Terminator's departure left Cloudrunner suddenly tired. He felt the weight of his years heavily. He sensed the dreadnought gazing at him, and looked up. Yes, honoured ancestor, he asked in the tongue of the plains people. You could go back with us. You are worthy of becoming a living dreadnought, it said. He wished he could return, and spend his last years with the chapter, but he knew that he could not. His duty was to his people now. He must return them to the Emperor's way. He shook his head. I thought not. You are a worthy chieftain of the people, Cloudrunner. Any Sky Warrior would be, ancestor. Few are given the chance. Before you depart, there is something I must know. When we first met, you told me I should not become a Sky Warrior if there was anyone I would regret leaving behind. Do you have any regrets about becoming a Marine? The Dreadnought stared at him. Sometimes I still do. It is a sad thing to leave people you care about behind, knowing they will be lost to you forever. Goodbye, Cloudrunner. We will not meet again. The Dreadnought turned and departed, leaving Cloudrunner enthroned among his people, his hands toying with a braid of ancient hair.